Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Um, today I want to do uh, go off track a little bit again. Uh, I'm going to start going back and forth with these uh, philosophy and the uh, literary ones. Um, but I feel I've gotten a little too far from philosophy, so I'm going to uh, start today with a series that I did a uh, I did in my webpage. Um, uh, it's an eleven part series on power. They're very short essays in there. Um, but I wanted to kind of do them here so that I can flesh them out a little bit and give them a little more substance. So today we're going to talk about the first uh, part of that series. Um, and this basically begins, uh, this series is going to begin from ancient times through the present. So we're going to start with prehistory. Um, with prehistory, you don't obviously have any written records of the way things were. You have to kind of reconstruct uh, based on what early societies would be like. Um, you, your best, and by early societies, I mean very early hunter-gatherer societies. This is not uh, even things that are a couple thousand years ago. These are tens of thousands of years ago. <clears throat> you would have societies that would have a similar hierarchy to what you see in social animals, the primates, the lions, things like that. You would have one ruler who would be ruler by nature of being the strongest. Um, and they, whoever was the strongest basically would get their way. Uh, and everyone else would be forced to follow them. There's a problem with this type of power, though. Uh, when you have this kind of power, it is always temporary and very temporary. The first time you stagger, the first time you slip, uh, you run the risk of somebody overthrowing you. So this is not a power that's very stable. This is something where you would have uh, periodic struggles for power and a society that wouldn't be very organized um, because everything would be based on the leader trying to keep power and other people wanting to take it away. Uh, as the time went on, people started to have other questions and concerns uh, outside of power. And one of those questions and concerns uh, started to be, how did we get here? Where do we go after we die? And so early on, you start to get people that start creating um, the ideas about the gods and the goddesses. And the brighter people who were in power realized if they wanted to make their power more secure, they needed to cooperate with these people. Uh, these people could give them a more legitimate basis for their power. <clears throat> now, part of what I base this on is by looking at very old um, stories. Uh, Gilgamesh, for one, uh, the ancient Greek, the ancient uh, Roman, the ancient Norse, um, they all have these stories that are similar in that the royal bloodlines are connected to the gods. So they start to create these very rigid hierarchies. And in these hierarchies, you will see these things happen over and over again. There are the gods at the top of the pyramid, uh, sometimes with one main god that is over the other gods, sort of the king or queen of the gods. And then below that, you have the ruler on earth and the priests. Um, and then below that, you would have the aristocrats, nobility. And below that, you would have basically um, peasants and slaves. <clears throat> 
And these stories, like you see in Gilgamesh, always, as I said, tie the bloodlines of the king to deities. Uh, and this is to sort of reinforce the idea that if you go against the king, you came from human parents, and who came from human parents, uh, this person has a god or goddess in their bloodline. Um, you are trying to go above your your place in the hierarchy, and the the punishment for that was always extreme and severe. Uh, in Gilgamesh, you have... Um, Gilgamesh refusing a goddess, and the goddess has her father send the bull of heaven down to punish him, and Gilgamesh um, uh, revolts even further, and he and his friend kill the kill the bull of heaven. So you have them thwarting the will of the gods. They have stepped above their. He has stepped above his station, and fought against someone who is higher in the pyramid. For punishment for that, his friend dies, gets sick and dies. Uh, and Gilgamesh then realizes that he is mortal. So he kind of goes on this quest to try to find the secret to immortality. Uh, you see this over and over again with, if you look at the, um, the family trees of the uh, Greek, uh, Greek monarchs, they generally will at some point trace back to um, Zeus or one of the other gods. Uh, this is, again, to ensure that this, these hierarchies stay in place. So just because the king is having a bad day, uh, is asleep and you happen to have a knife, you can't kill him because it gets drowned, drilled into your head that this is violating the will of the gods. This is violating the hierarchy. You even see this at lower levels in society in these stories. You know, it's not always dealing with a king. Um, sometimes you'll have a peasant that will stumble across a, uh, a goddess who's in a pond or, you know, uh, bathing or in a field, and the peasant tries to abuse or uh, attack the goddess. And the punishment for this is always severe. The peasant ends up turned into some kind of creature. Uh, the peasant ends up being torn apart. Uh, and again, these stories over and over again reinforce these hierarchies. Um, <clears throat> this is the way that people uh, build what they think of as common sense. The stories you grow up hearing, the... Uh, things that the people in your culture, your family, uh, the priests or priestesses, the nobility, these, these stories that come down to you, uh, these tales of the way things are, become drilled into you that this is the way it is. This is the natural order sent down from the gods. Now, one of the problems that starts to occur uh, fairly early on is that since there are multiple gods, um, there starts to be ideas that the gods have conflicts. So if there is a particular god that is behind the king, and you're a lesser king, um, but you have a different god that is above you, uh, perhaps you can overtake the higher king uh, by appealing to the, the god or goddess that you serve. You know, the cities of Athens and 
Sparta and Troy all had their uh, sort of what you would call their patron god or goddess that was the one that they were following. <clears throat> so this idea of multiple gods starts to create uh, difficulties for the people in power because, well, I just prayed to this god, therefore now I'm okay, I'm still, on, I'm still in the right with the gods, I can do this. So they had to invent a god that was not as easily able to be doubted. And the god that they come up with, and most people will probably think this is strange at first, but this, this god that they come up with that is harder to doubt is money. Um, coins at first, or pieces of pre precious metal, or precious gemstones. Now, the idea that these are gods seems a bit foolish until you actually step back and think about what is the value of these precious metals, these precious stones, uh, these pieces of paper with writing on them. And when you look at it, you realize that there is no value to these things other than faith, which is the exact same value that religion had. You know, people could start to doubt the gods and goddesses in the sky because they could never see them. Well, you can never see them. You don't know if you should believe or not. Here's something you can see, you can hold in your hand. Um, if you look back through the history of money uh, and, and think about what it has always been, it has never been anything other than a faith-based religion that is enforced by the government or the king or the monarchy or wh what whoever happens to be in charge. You know, uh, ask yourself, why is gold valuable? And, and most people will say something like, well, because people have always believed it's valuable. And the problem is right there where they said people have always believed it. Because it's not something until you get into electronics that really has much value. Um, it has value for statues and ornamentation and jewelry because it's easy to work with and it keeps its color and it doesn't tarnish you know uh, lead is easy to work with but it doesn't keep its shape very well copper is not bad to work with but it also eventually uh, discolors and turns green gold is something that is much easier than stone to work with you can shape it um, and polish it and make it look good uh, much easier than stone and it doesn't require as much maintenance as some of the other metals so gold starts to get a value because it's seen as this magical metal that has all of these wonderful properties but again you're, you're talking into the realm of belief people believe this is has this has value uh, gold as I said, the only actual value to it uh, that we have is it is a great conductor of electricity that doesn't corrode. So it's used in electronics. Um, Pre-electronics, though, this value wouldn't have existed. Uh, diamonds are the same way. Uh, diamonds, everybody thinks diamonds have always been valuable. Diamonds have only actually been valuable for a very short period of time. At the beginning of the 20th century, uh, diamonds, if they were used in jewelry were used in cheap costume jewelry. They weren't considered a precious stone. Uh, back then, the largest diamond company in the world was De Beers. Uh, De Beers, most of their diamonds 
were sold as cutting tools. This is the actual value that diamonds have to the real world. Diamonds make a really great cutting tool. Uh, they're extremely hard and they can be uh, refined to very sharp points. So they're used for cutting tools and drills. Well, De Beers was not selling anywhere near enough of them and not getting enough money up out of them as cutting tools. So De Beers comes up with an advertising campaign that says diamonds are forever. You know, this is the idea that if you want to prove to the woman you love that you love her forever, you will buy her a diamond. And after this campaign comes out, the value of diamonds explodes and people start to believe that they have to have diamonds in their uh, wedding rings, that they have to have diamonds jewelry, you know, something that was just a, a cheap piece of costume jewelry a few years ago suddenly starts to become something valuable. And it doesn't become valuable because it's picked up any special properties. It becomes valuable solely on the basis of people believe it to be valuable. Um, <clears throat> so the early societies, when they were polytheistic, again, to sort of cut back on some of this idea of, well, what do you do with, you know, there are different gods within our belief system. And then you go over to the next uh, town over or two towns over and they have completely different gods. So how do you have something where you can hold power over all of them? Um, you can do it by military force, but you've got to remember populations were not as large then as they are now. Uh, and military campaigns now and then are extremely costly. Uh, it costs a lot to feed these people. It costs a lot to arm these people. So the idea of having large armies all the time is really not feasible unless they're constantly bringing in um, goods. So the idea of using money creates a system where uh, you can have wealthy areas that can sort of have take power over poorer areas. Um, I'm going to break off this for now. Uh, my next one, I do promise I will get back to cultural criticism. Uh, we're going to talk about cultural criticism, actually, and post-colonialism next time. Uh, I hope all of you are well. I hope all of you are staying safe, and I will talk to you again soon.